Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a special episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. Usually, you hear me or you hear me interviewing a guest. Today, in this episode, it's a little bit different, where I am being interviewed somewhat by my good friend, Dr. Ahmed Yunus. This is also a co-sponsored podcast, so I'm posting it on my platform, Making Sense of Islam, and Ahmed's also posting it on his podcast, The Study, with Ahmed Yunus. Who is Ahmed? Ahmed Yunus is committed to the untested feasibility of what is possible through the process of always becoming. Ahmed was raised between Los Angeles, California and Cairo, Egypt. He is the host of The Study with Ahmed Yunus, a podcast that brings art, books and ideas to the challenges of our time. Do check the notes for the link to his podcast. Dr. Yunus focuses on the duality of personal and societal growth, encouraging a critical assessment of the world and the word. He served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and Deputy Special Envoy in the Obama Administration, responsible for state and non-state-sponsored disinformation and propaganda. He holds a JD from Washington and Lee University, Virginia, and a PhD in Critical Pedagogy with an emphasis in Leadership Studies from Chapman University, California. I am very curious to hear everyone's feedback on this new format, Please let me know on the social media accounts. Without further ado, please enjoy this interesting conversation with Ahmed Yunus. Okay, we are recording. I am honored to be here. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to do this and for making the time. No, it's my pleasure, and uh, I, I hope you're well, and your family's well, and all the people that we have in common are well. Alhamdulillah, inshallah. Likewise, for you and your family. You're in California, right? I am. I'm at the beach. I'm in Huntington Beach, the center of the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, where people have positive of NAM. Um, there are literally deans of colleges here in Orange County who are on the school board arguing against making uh, students wear masks in schools. So I, I am in the I am in the fire. Yeah, well, interesting times. Alhamdulillah, we uh, we you know, I've I've always had the blessing of uh, seeing the fruit of tough times. So uh, perhaps unrealistically, but I'm always of the opinion that these are action-inducing moments. Um, And we as human beings have a responsibility to attempt to push the momentum in, you know, in one direction as opposed to another. Very true. Very true. So where should we begin 
our discussion that I'm sure will be all over the place? Um, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a guest in your home, man. Would you like to? Oh, I'm a guest. You, I'm a guest at your home. So Habibi. I actually don't even remember what was the initial. We were like there was some kind of online Facebook post that we were commenting on. It was from that that we decided we should do this. I don't even remember what that was, but so hmm. much has trans. Whenever that was, so much has hmm. transpired since then. It might hmm. have even been before Ramadan. Uh, I, I can't even really remember. Because all the days now, I mean, I don't even know I don't, what month it is, what year it is. It's COVID era. Um, well, let's begin, let's begin with uh, the proposition that um, Muslims are broken. Okay. Uh, in, in our time today, uh, the vast majority of people who identify as Muslim uh, have... Uh, um, a dysfunctional relationship with uh, the deen of Islam. Primarily, it is the dysfunction of uh, cultural inclinations overwhelming uh, religious literacy um, or it is the you know, best example, um, the Azhari yielding to Napoleon, uh, this is in the book Islamic Enlightenment. When the French came uh, to Egypt, they noticed that people were, uh, you know, men were holding hands and uh, walking with their arms folded. And, and, and the French came to the Egyptians and said, what is this? And the Egyptians said, this is haram. This is, this is not our way of being. These people are not among us. So Napoleon said, okay, no problem. I want you to make everything that's haram a crime in the secular law so that your society can begin to advance to modernity. And we, we as Muslims, now I'm not, I have not yet touched Islam. We as Muslims, I think, have reached a level of illiteracy in the deen and the dunya and the dialectic relationship between them that we have become completely lost. Let's start with that proposition. <laughs> easy, easy one, right? It's a low-hanging fruit. Uh, I agree with that uh, proposition. Um, in, my, in my world and in my work, I phrase it a little bit differently, but I think we mean mm. the same thing. I believe that there is a, a widespread level of ignorance amongst, amongst Muslims towards Muslim practices, Muslim beliefs, and when I was younger, I thought I understood why. And then as I get older and as I have more experience with the community, I understand that it is very, very complicated answer. Hmm. So there are multiple, there are multiple uh, things that are informing or not informing. There are multiple things that are directing this ignorance. Hmm. One of them, I think, is that we, we still are in a way suffering from the trauma of the loss of the caliphate. And I don't think that that is something that we dealt with completely effectively. Mm. Not, not that we need a caliphate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that was so, such a traumatic in, uh, incident, historical incident, that we were definitely not prepared for. Is definitely unparalleled. I mean, there have been like losses in the past, but not like this where it's, it's like all over. And it was all over from Muslims. It was like Muslims themselves that said, nah, we don't need this anymore. You know, just chuck it outside. And that coupled with the colonial experience, I know that people get sick of hearing that, but that really is a big trauma. 
and, and trying to mm-hmm. deal with that. You know, you mentioned Napoleon, this idea of modernization. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're backward, that Islam is inherently backward? So we have all this stuff that's thrust on the heartland of the Muslim world. And with that's going to come a lot of trauma trying to deal with it. And in that, there are a lot of reactions. And I still think that a lot of the movements that we have today in one, in one way, shape or form somehow yield back to some of those reactions, whether it's a political reaction or a fundamentalist reaction or a Mahdiist reaction, like a messianic reaction. So that's, that's sort of one area. Uh, the other area is what I call like the dominant culture, not necessarily Western culture, but just the modern dominant culture. There are certain themes that are thrust upon us that seem now multiplied because of social media and the rapidity by which they are spread, that we are impacted by them. And without unbeknownst to us, we adopt some of those themes. Hmm. And in us... Give me, give, what, like, give me an example of one. So an example is the idea of publicly shaming somebody, Mm. calling out people, Mm. okay? Mm. Whereas in the more traditional Islamic world, the idea Mm. of setr or Mm. the veiling that uh, that is one of Allah's names, Mm. as-sattar, the fact that your sin has been veiled and therefore if I see my brother or sister committing a sin, I should veil their sin. You know, mm. So God veil my sins on the day of judgment. And if you say mm. that publicly now, people are like, you're insane. Are you saying mm. that we should protect pedophiles? Like, I didn't say that. I didn't, mm. I'm not talking about that. But mm. I'm saying I don't have to publicly shame people if I saw somebody that's acting so-so, not a crime. You know, we're, we're talking about non-crimes. Mm. Then I would, the Islamic way, quote unquote, would be for me to go and sit down with this person and try to give them nasiha, discuss it with them. You know, see, is there something going on? Is there something I can do to help, etc.? Uh, but now we have almost no tolerance. We want to call mm. out everybody. Mm. Look, this person 15 years ago tweeted, or maybe there was no Twitter back then, but you know what I mean? This person's X number of years ago said this one statement and that's boom, you know, cancel, mm. destroy, burn down this. Per- We're talking about Muslims against Muslims, burn down mm-hmm. this person. That's a function mm-hmm. of the modern culture because that's how the modern culture is. When you see like people like uh, Weinstein and Jerry Epstein and these kind of things, you're like, man, these guys are evil. You know, we should bring mm-hmm. them down, right? You start saying that mm-hmm. yourself. So you mm-hmm. carry that into your tribe and you're like, yeah, we should, you know, we should tear it down too. And mm-hmm. I think that sometimes mm-hmm. these things don't coexist with, with our uh, morals. Sometimes they do, but I think and sometimes they don't. And this causes, I think, like us to be, like you said, lost or confused. Hmm. Um, Wait, okay, let's take that one, for example, because um, I can imagine m- many listeners uh, wanting me to say the following. That satr um, should really be seen as um, we see defamation uh, or slander in modern law. I mean, if you are uh, what we call in the law a limited purpose public figure. You thrust yourself into the vortex of discourse on a specific topic. Um, in order for you to have any protection against me, you must prove that I know that what I am saying against you in the public is a lie. Okay. We have people like um, imams who have transgressed uh, with the grooming of young girls, the marrying uh, of women in secret, the, this is prevalent in the American Muslim community. Uh, that is rooted in 
a toxic masculinity, a toxicity that I do think is in many ways adopted from our kind of general cultural milieu. You're not saying we should go give those dudes nasiha. You're talking about people that we disagree with. Am I right? Am I wrong? Help me. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So just to be clear, I mean, I'm trying to help. Yeah, I'm just trying to make sure everybody understands. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, I actually not publicly known, but I was involved in a case in in Chicago. I mean, tertiarily involved in a case in Chicago in which an imam was uh, accused of uh, inappropriately uh, dealing with young girls, and uh, some people that were bringing uh, a lawsuit against him came to me, asked for advice. I mean, I was one amongst many, and I said, no, of mm. course, this is this is a harm. And, you know, Allah Ta'ala clearly says, So there's nothing wrong with that. And this is a crime against another person. And therefore, right. that other person has the right to, for legal recourse. And we shouldn't feel any shame as Muslims to engage in that. And th- those are, you know, Beautiful. despicable, bad crimes. I'm not talking about that. Beautiful. Because those are crimes. I'm talking about, you know, uh, you see me after Juma on Friday, uh, you know, I take off my my Juma gear and I'm, you know, walking in the mall with a, with a woman who is yeah, obviously yeah. not my wife, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe she's not dressed appropriately. You're like, what's up with, you know, Tarek? You know? Hmm. So rather than let me snap a picture mm-hmm. and post it, mm-hmm. maybe maybe this is like my sister from like mm. another mother or something that like is mm. visiting and Mm-mm-mm-mm. I took or whatever, you know, there has mm-hmm. to be like this, what we call husn al-dhan. Mm-hmm. That we don't, we're losing that right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. The problem though, and, and forgive me, Tara, I'm going to take it right to like your space here. <laughs> the, the, problem, the problem here is um, Muslim scholars are making really, really big mistakes uh, in the last two or three years. I mean, there is a whole regime of, and I don't know what word to use, traditionalists, I don't know, I, like, I'm not trying to use any sort of derogatory terminology, um, who will, for example, cite Ibn Rajab, and they will say, how dare you? I mean, are we allowed to just mention scholars that have written this, or are we not allowed to mention scholars that have written this? I don't you know, know I, I think I think we agreed that we were going to be uh, good, honest, and you know, transparent. Good, uh, with respect, with respect, and with love, and and we're all trying to figure something out, and and this is not when 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 Timothy Winter writes or speaks that Ibn Rajab explains to us how dare you be an imbecile to think that you can think of something that the original scholars have not thought of. That this insistence on your critical thinking rises to the level of shirk. Okay? The finishedness, not finality. Not arguing that the Prophet ﷺ is not the last messenger, not finality. The finishedness of Islam that has been presented to the people is not true. Islam is unfinished. And its finishedness comes with the critical thinking and applying of heart and mind of the abd in an attempt to come closer to God through righteous action and the improvement of self and improvement of society around you. I would argue that the regime that says there is an answer we're not talking about aqidah. We're not like we're all big grown-ups here. We've done a lot of reading and a lot of schooling. 
that say there is an answer on these questions, um, it, 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 it yields a discourse of, like, let's be honest, the first cancel culture is the cancel culture of the imams. The first cancel culture was that's haram and that's haram and you're, and wait, wait, uh, you're not allowed to think and you shouldn't and move back to the back of the bus and the women and the, the first, the original cancel culture in Islam is when we took the agency of the Muslim to be literate in the deen and the dunya enough to be able to walk this life with courage and strength and hope in the untested feasibility of what is possible in Islam and in the, the world. Like you, you, you know, you, like Tariq, you and I sit with scholars. The Islam of scholars is not the same as the Islam of the masses. The so, Islam of scholars is very, very sweet. Let me just finish this one. Very sweet, very kind, very soft, very, it smells nice. It's, it's got, there's coffee around and it's everybody's music. like, talked about, about. It's, music. It's, it's music. It's music. Please. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I, not to sound like I'm defending TJ Winter, I don't know the reference you're making. Uh, so no, I'm just, no, no problem. I'm going to go no just abstractly or even to the original quote of Ibn Rajab. But no the, way, the way I was taught and the way I teach my students, and I think that the way I like to keep front and center, is that we have to di differentiate between what we would call an original text, like a text of the Quran and the Sunnah. And then we have to understand that text and then we have to apply that text. And all three are going to be different. So if somebody's going to come and say, you know, I don't like these verses in the Quran. Let's just like throw them away. No, 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 one's, no, no Muslim. That's not going to work because no Muslim is really going to agree. And nobody's saying that. I don't want to saying that. Yeah. But how do you understand the text? Whoa, you know, that's a whole nother thing because you have to bring to bear an immense amount of intellectual resources to understand the text simply because we believe these texts come from the absolute, even the sunnah. So, but I'm not absolute. So that means my understanding, your understanding, Ibn Rajab, Imam Shafi's understanding, it's always going to be partial based on the constraints that we have at the time that we have. I'm pretty sure that Imam al uh, Imam Shafi will is infinitely smarter than me. And, you know, 99.999% of the times is going to get it right. And I won't. So therefore, I have respect for what he did. But the idea that it's like locked and sealed and, and you know, tucked away, nobody's really said that. Because but you, just, had, but, but you kind of just said that. I mean, when you yield, like Imam Shafi lived in a reality that is in diametric opposition to the reality that we live. Yeah, well, I was going to say, to well, there are certain things. So one of the things that the reason I mentioned Imam Shafi specifically, somebody like him, is he laid down a methodology for understanding. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to come, if I'm going to say I can come up with a different set of tools to understanding the Quran and Sunnah, I probably won't. But if I use the tools laid down by Imam Shafi, I might come up with different conclusions on issues that are transitory. Not on like wudu and salah and siyam because that stuff doesn't change. It, that it is what it is. But on the on the social issues that we live in, that we're dealing with now, good. On the issues of human to human transaction, which is the bulk majority of Islamic law, uh -huh. that stuff always changes. So therefore, my understanding will change, and therefore, more importantly, my application of the Quran and Sunnah will change because of those changing circumstances. Good. Who has the authority to make that process to engage in that? thinking and applying process 
the person that has learned the interpretive tools, you know, the, the tools laid down in usul al-fiqh, some of them are agreed upon, some of them are specific to different schools, mm. uh, to understand what qiyas means, ijma', to understand mm-hmm. the parameters of the Arabic language, mm-hmm. to know the basic verses upon which the sharia is based, which are about 500, to mm-hmm. learn the hadith upon which the sharia is based, which are about 2,000, Mm-hmm. And more importantly, or, or equally importantly, to know the world in which they live in now. So if somebody mm-hmm. comes and asks me about vaping, mm-hmm. you know, I need to know everything there is about vaping. I can't just mm-hmm. be like, ah, that's haram. I, I need mm-hmm. to know, like, buy me a thing of vape or whatever and give me some flavors and, mm-hmm. and you know, bring it to me and let me see. That's what the ulama did in the past. They experimented mm-hmm. to test things out. So I, if somebody says... You know, I, I was just asked this morning about cryptocurrency. Okay, I need mm-hmm. to learn about blockchain and crypto and the different types. Because mm-hmm. if I can't uh, capture in my mind completely what that thing is, I will not mm-hmm. be able to apply the Quran and Sunnah to it. So that's also but, you need to know the here and now. So my question to you is, what about another model where we raise Muslims to have literacy in Islam and the dunya, and they then become secular experts in cryptocurrency and then other muslims call them and say hey how do you deal with some of the ethical challenges that are presented in this space right like the idea that there is a repository of wisdom that is authorized like let me give you another example uh, muhammad al-yaqubi from syria he has a book called refuting isis and in the book, he makes the exact same kind of error that Imam Zaychek had made on Facebook when the sex slavery thing first started, which is the Jonathan Brown argument that the reason why sex slavery is not permitted among ISIS, this is like from the text of Muhammad Yaqubi, is that the necessary, is that the states that are Muslim majority states have signed on to treaties that obligate them away from the permissibility if the prerequisites are present of engaging in sex slavery. But because these people come from nation states that have opted out, these people that are engaging in sex slavery on behalf of ISIS are engaging in haram. However, if these treaties do not exist, we revert back to the original structure which says that if you meet the necessary this kind of prisoner of war slave sex slave not slave this kind of familiar argument that we know okay and then when all else fails the original cancel culture the imams the sheikhs the ulama the us they say are you saying that the prophet was immoral are you saying that you're more moral than the Prophet Muhammad? How dare you say that you're more moral than the Prophet Muhammad? And what, are, what is the person saying? The person is saying, man, can we get somebody to come up in here and say sex slavery is not permitted in Islam under any circumstance from today until the day of judgment? No, they won't do that. So the problem that we have, my old friend and dear brother that I respect greatly, is the system that you have laid out is, is not a system that is open to movement that displaces the authority of previous generations because that is where the authority of the imams of this generation get their legitimacy. 
So what we're looking for as the people is, hey, man, can we have like a process of deciding what is Islam that does not bind us to a authoritative silsila that is, for the most part, men, for the most part, Sunni, for the most part, Arab, you know it well. What is the answer of like the... I don't know what to, the Sheikh the academy, the, the Muslim. So there, there are two, I'm hearing there are two issues. So let me just take them one by one. So the yeah. first issue about, uh, can somebody be a secular expert in a subject? And, you know, they're referred to, uh, not only uh, can that happen and should that happen, but that does happen. So in the early part of the 20th century, a lot of the thinking, particularly by people like Muhammad Rashid Rida, Ahmed Shakir and others, a little bit Muhammad Abdu, the idea was like, look, this fatwa situation is, is, is booming because of the, the changing nature of the world. We need councils. Like we can't do, it can't be like an individual guy hanging out in a mosque, just like issuing edicts. We need, we need experts. When I was working in the National Fatwa Office in Egypt, we had the Mufti, the Grand Mufti had subcommittees. There was a banking committee. He would meet with the governor of the Central Egyptian Bank. I think it was like the first Thursday or first Sunday of every mm -hmm. month to discuss like the comings and goings of the financial institutions. We had mm -hmm. phys uh, physicians, we had economists, we had secular mm -hmm. legal experts. So, mm -hmm. because they were like really, really sticky issues. Mm -hmm. So there would always be consults. The, the, the federal office is full of little offices that have these experts in there that opine on their mm -hmm. expertise. Mm -hmm. That is precisely what I meant by having to know the here and now. So, going back to the vaping example or, you know, THC or marijuana or now mushrooms and, you know, psychedelics and these type of things for me. Bro, I'm that's just, a really big, I just got to say for the people, that's a big category, dog. Could we not like put all Okay. So I, I meant, okay, I meant, I meant some of the, cause I, like you went, you just went from like vaping to psychedelics sorry, and you it, slashed is, uh, weed in the middle of the, that's a Freudian on, slip, a Freudian <laughs> slip because these are issues, these are issues that I'm interested in researching. I'm sorry. So in my no, mind, no, 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 I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> But uh, for me, uh, because I'm interested, I just mentioned it, you know, I, I consume news and information by the experts and by the people that are running these studies, because I, I'm not going to, I can't do the study myself. Of course, I need to, you know, rely on quote unquote expertise. So that's something that we have to have and I advocate. And oftentimes when people don't have that, I think that's when they flounder. Do they teach that? Like, can you help me like help us here? Well, at, at, that's at what the, I, I mean. That's, that's at the universities. The, do they teach? Do they teach? Um, do they? I mean, I don't know. Like, I was a professor at a university in America. I taught quantitative statistics to graduate students. Okay, and I taught critical theory, uh, critical pedagogy to graduate students. Okay, in the world of Al Azhar, or in I don't know. I don't want to say Al Azhar, like religious schooling yeah, yeah. in Muslim majority societies. There is no interdisciplinary engagement. There, the, the, like, are, are undergraduate students in those environments taught uh, quantitative research? Are they taught qualitative so research? On the, if we just abstract, like, you know, in the, in the world, in the Sunni world, it does not have happen as much as it should happen. But it does happen in some places. In the mm. Shia world, they're much better at this than the Sunnis. Beautiful statement, okay. So I would, just as a very general statement, I was fortunate enough um, that I benefited from a system that was very interdisciplinary. And I myself am interdisciplinary because I 
came you went to from Yale, America. right? You, you went to school here in the U.S. All my formal schooling is in the U.S. I studied with Sayyid Hussein Nasr, uh, undergrad and master's. My master's was Islam and Hinduism. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then my uh, Ph.D. work at Princeton was in contemporary Islamic law. So I come from a like uh, ecumenical uh, mm-hmm. kumbaya comparative religion yeah. background. Uh-huh. And then I also studied at the seminary and I was trained at Dar al-Ifta itself. Mm-hmm. So I, like, mm-hmm. I saw this process. What I'm describing to you is, are things that I lived and I saw. No, totally. So I cool. respect the interdisciplinary uh, approach and I criticize people that, that come from the quote-unquote traditional Sunni world that do not have that because they oftentimes make gross, gross, gross mistakes. Mm. So that was the first thing you said. The second thing about sex slavery you know like an accordion not that you are saying this but whoever argues what you just argued is like they took an accordion and they totally collapsed it and made the argument like this Uh uh so the argument is much more it's i don't want to say nuanced there are many more details that are missing from that argument so islamic wait 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 wait. you see don't like let me just ask one thing yeah what we can't do is you can't then like do me like I'm telling you they're doing the people like you're about no, to no, no, no. I, I'm not going to, I'm not trying okay, to, do I, just okay, say, I just want to say one thing that, uh-huh. that, that uh, I would go as far as to say is that uh, sex slavery is a completely detestable, immoral act that is backed up by the Sharia itself because the entire structure of Islamic law is to eradicate slavery we have no books of slavery in islamic law we only have books of manumission of how to free slaves mm-hmm. and when you study usul al-fiqh you learn all of the rule i mean not some of the discussions of usul al-fiqh talk about manumission uh like one example this was like the first day i attended class that's why i remember it is like if a master tells to the slave boy my son ya ibni mm. and this, that slave boy is of the age that he could be the, the son of the master, automatically mm. that pronouncement would mean that the slave is free. Mm. So there are all of these type of rules and loopholes because the whole structure is to free slavery. My brother, you're talking about a completely different time, man. No, but I'm, like, no, but I'm talking, talking about Islamic law as a system of legislation. We are, in complete, we are in complete agreement that the Quran and the fiqh that has been promulgated pursuant to the Quran aims to end slavery we're in complete agreement okay but that's what i that's what i want to be doing that's where i'm living in my mind i'm what are you referring we're, to? okay i'm asking you can we get without all that a clear statement against the permissibility of slavery and okay. sex slavery, slavery in is Islam? haram there uh-huh slavery is okay so then what's going on then with the um well then why why would people like the people i mentioned argue the way that they argued because there is a legal there is a historical process of how we got to this point because it wasn't outlawed until whatever like the mid 1800s i think Mm -hmm. uh I mean, Mauritania was practicing slavery the day before yesterday. I mean, yeah, I, well, I mean, with that that's as not, the notable... I mean, the Arab Gulf is practicing slavery yeah, today. Sure, with the notable exception of those countries. I mean, formally, I, if I'm not mistaken, Egypt was amongst the first countries that signed these treaties with Britain. I think it was the English... Yes. 
um, uh, initiative. And I think it was, yes. I want to say between 1850 and 1870s, I can't re really remember the exact date, but it was sometime mm -hmm. in the 19th century, which is quite late, you know, if we're mm -hmm. talking about Islam going back to the advent of the Prophet, it's, you know, it's, it mm -hmm. took quite a bit of time for mm -hmm. us to get to that point. Mm -hmm. But uh, those agreements, uh, you know, I think what Sheikh Mohammed Yaqubi is trying to say is legally binding. But we have no directive. There is no divine directive wait, wait, to establish slavery. Binding. Wait, what is this? Bro, you're t now you're arguing for slavery. What do you mean it's legally binding? Legally binding on who? No, that like, I'm saying like, what, look, you know who this is right here? This is, this is Justice Ginsburg right here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you're telling me that a, that, a, that a few Justice Ginsburgs a thousand years ago came up with a way of thinking about prisoners of war. And you're telling me that in 2020, I, as a Muslim, am bound, bound by this kind of like circular, incoherent, like, like loop series of loopholes that Wait, get now, to now I'm a little confused. I, well, I, 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 I don't think I, I finished my point. So let me just okay. finish my point because now I'm, I'm a little confused. Club, I'm, club I'm, club I'm club. certainly not defending slavery and I never, I never will. No, no, I, you're saying we're bound by... I, I, I'm Muhammad trying to explain, is bound by. I'm trying to explain what I think Sheikh Mohammed Yaqubi was trying to indicate is mm -hmm. that because these are uh, international treaties that these countries signed by consensus, I mean, the people of these countries agreed that we should eradicate slavery, that therefore it is from that time onwards eradicated. I, I think that's what he's just trying to say, to, to prove that there's no legal basis of what ISIS is claiming. Because ISIS, yeah, what they were man, trying. Man, 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 you're telling me, you're telling me that the, 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 this big sheikh with the whole thing is, is, is <laughs> like he when, he, when you come to tell him why is ISIS sex slavery wrong, he says because these nation states are bound by agreements? Like international uh, okay, law, so, so you're, customary you're, international law. Like you're telling me, you're, customary so you're trying to say that you can imply by his statement that you could bring it back and that it's moral. Is that what you're saying? Of course. If but for these agreements, the original law holds. The uh, original okay, okay. fatwas hold. Yeah, I don't like, think that. I Let's don't think that that's what he's trying to say. But anyway, I mean... Uh, okay, Mishy, man. I can pull it up, but that's okay. It's not a problem. We love him. I love him. I met him at the White House. It's not a big deal. Well, it's like, not it's about love or They're not They're just lover. ideas. But these are ideas that have uh, huge consequences. <laughs> I am telling you, this is, this is... I wish that I could find it right now. This the is last, squarely the last, what he argued. The last uh, Sheikh al-Islam of the Ottoman Empire, Mustafa Sabri, he was presented with a case before he was kicked out of, uh, of Istanbul. He was presented with a case in which there was a boy who was a slave uh, who uh, could be adopted by a non-Muslim family and earn his freedom or remain with the Muslim family and remain with his Islam. And he said mm. unequivocally, mm. the child should be given to the non-Muslim family because mm. freedom, in mm. this case, freedom of like uh, servitude, Mm -hmm. outweighs even religion itself mm -hmm. and the Gabin. opportunity for manumission will only come once in life but the opportunity to find guidance to islam or whatever any other religion is open-ended for the rest of the person's life Be so i mean that's, that's somebody who, who died in like the 50s so i for me i mean that's pretty straightforward it's it's a bad thing and why would we defend slavery i think what people are having difficulty is this argument are you saying therefore that the prophet sallam engaged in you know uh impermissible acts or he's not moral and, and that, that's what i meant by the accordion that people are reducing the argument by mm -hmm. saying that but that's not what i'm saying 
because the mm-hmm. Prophet mm-hmm. is infallible. He is the law maker. So he was, he's teaching. He freed his slaves. Slavery already existed. He didn't invent slavery. So that's the answer to that question. Of course, we're not saying that the Prophet is immoral. I mean, Hashad, that we would say that. So that type of reductive thinking, I think, is, what, is how we get into the mess that we get in. That's what I meant by the accordion. Not that I'm like going to take you down this like legal loophole to hmm. defend slavery. I mean, why would I do that? No, not to defend slavery. No, no, no. I'm not saying to defend slavery. I'm saying um, we are over fiqh. The, uh, the fiqh has suffocated the uh, uh, spirit, insp- inspiration, intellectual yeah. output, philosophy, art, identity, culture. So I, I would we say it another are... way. I would say it another way. Uh, Sayyidina Omar, uh, anhu, he was walking with one of his uh, companions. He was like, the Khalifa at this time. And there was like from the second story uh, balcony of like this house, some water fell on them. Like somebody was cleaning and like threw some water out. So th- the guy next to him, he like looked at his clothes and he, and he yelled, he's like, is this Tahir or Najis? So Sayyidina Umar, he's like, I, I ask you by Allah not to answer this guy because that's not how Islam works. And he, he just kept walking. The mm-hmm. Sahaba were easygoing, were relaxed. Mm-hmm. The Prophet mm-hmm. said the best religion is the easygoing religion. Mm-hmm. Easygoing. So yes, from the point of view, we're over fiqh, absolutely. These mm-hmm. are legal discussions that have to happen with jurists not you know online. you know it's amazing you know it's amazing because at, at, at my understanding i was watching uh and as how do you speak and he was saying that um at azhar we teach the fatawa of history as history like we this is a history class i'm telling you what happened in a history class we're not arguing that these are the ways that we should be understanding reality yeah, what, what today. What we want to do is we want to do what they did, which is make Islam relevant for our time today. Gami, not, not, not for, so it is history. It is history. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. We're, we're on the same. Okay, so we're I like on, that. We're over fifth. We're, we're over fifth. There's another way to say it, but I'll wait until my book comes <laughs> no, out. Let's just say we're, 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 we are over fifth. And I think the reason why we're over fifth is because we have convinced the masses that if they think they will commit sin, we have Catholicized Islam. Muslims are afraid to engage. They are afraid to engage. Remember the book by Shahab, Shahab Ahmed, uh, What is Islam? Yeah. Uh, the Harvard. Remember that book? Yeah. Okay. For whatever you think of that book, that book argued that Islam is composed of three things. Number one, pretext, text, and context. Pretext is pursuant to the notion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and creation and reality capital R and the unpacking of that reality, it did not start with the revelation of the Quran. There is worship when you walk through the park. There is worship when you look at the stars. There is worship when you love your mother. There is worship when you insist on not committing sin, even though it's the easy way out. Like the idea that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation is distilled into the Qur'an. Like we all know these, like I've lived in the Arab world, I've lived in the big population countries, I've lived in the Gulf countries, I've lived in Saudi Arabia. The idea that Islam is to be unpacked as a rhythmic tension between the dunya that I am experiencing and the deen that I am learning 
that has been taken away from the average Muslim. The average Muslim is afraid to think lest they fall into, into sin. Yeah, and, well, th there's, a, there's a reason why. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, just to be a little defensive uh, or advocate for my, my tribe, <laughs> yeah. is, is one of the two, there are two things. One is this Salafi Wahhabi way of Islam where we woke up one day and everything became haram mm. uh, and against the sunnah. So then everyone starts asking, well, can I do this? Can I do this? Even like the takbirat that we say in the Eid, somebody mm. came to the mosque one day and said, that's bid'ah. Mm. I mean, it's takbirat of the day of Eid. It's our holiday. I mean, mm -hmm. doesn't it suck enough that we're like in a parking lot eating Dunkin' <laughs> Donuts? I mean, can't we have a little bit of fun? And then, and it is the lack of the influence of popular tasawwuf. Whereas there is a popular spiritual connection and festive mm -hmm. nature to Islam that always existed. I agree with you. The default should be that Muslims should be easygoing, creative, happy, exploratory. Uh, you know, go out there and do it. But, you know, Habibi, if you fall down, you can come back and the Sheikh will, will help put you, you know, bend, you know, uh, put you back together and mend your wounds. That's really how the, the Sheikh is like the coach, kind of like the grandfather figure there to help you not lose your way. But yeah, go. Allah says that in the Quran. You know, he tells us to go out and do things and to explore, but not to forget our taqwa, you know, just pack your taqwa. Hmm. You don't need to be a triple PhD in Islamic law to be able to do that. So I agree with you. And I think that those two things, at least in my, like on the streets experience, those are the problems. People are afraid to express themselves and people have, are afraid, like the guy with the big beard is going to come into the mosque and just, you know, poo poo on everything and say everything is haram and bid'ah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, the, the over fiqh thing, I can see that from your perspective, how it's another problem. I think that's the ulama trying to flex in the face of these two things, but I can see, you know, now standing back, I can see how it can backfire because it's very off-putting. I mean, you know, I mean, I went to law school. I mean, I love law. I mean, I think law is great. Um, however, we know um, that when you, you know, like I, I would simply argue that we have placed too much on Islam. We have placed too much on Islam. We want Islam to explain the post-colonial experience and explain white supremacy and explain those dudes and explain slavery and explain war and explain human rights and explain the place of women. And but, but the structure that has been created in the last 1400 years doesn't yield that. It kind of only yields what I've always argued it yields, basic parameters, red lines, an encouragement to unpack the creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made for you to ponder as worship. Okay. Pretext that wisdom. You and I have traveled, alhamdulillah, to many, many, many different countries. We've met many people. I mean, let me speak for you. Tell me if I'm wrong. Who are not quote unquote Muslim, but clearly this person is connected. This person is blessed. This person has a, there is something intangible happening here that is of a spiritual nature of uh, he is he or she is offering wisdom is offering love is right sure yeah sure how did we as Muslims fall into the exceptionalism supremacy trap how did we fall into the trap of allowing the world to argue to us that what comes from Allah is that which has a Muslim label 
and everything else is not ours. Well, I, I think we suffer from, you know, post-empireism, where Islam has been such a dominant force, like forever, since its advent. And we, you know, we controlled everything and did everything and discovered everything. And there are Muslims all over the place. And I think that we're still, we still have this like dominant dominance uh, idea of hegemony in our subconscious as Muslims, even as Muslim minorities, you know, like as we are in the United States or in Europe or, or elsewhere. Whereas other religious groups that have always historically been minorities, they don't have this attitude. They know that they have to live with the context of, you know, their, their society all the time mm. and probably for the rest of time or else they'll be extinct. Like there are religious groups like Zoroastrians that are, you know, very, they're holding on with a thread. There are other minority communities like Jews who are thriving and whose numbers continue to increase, etc. But you, you can observe in the minority uh, attitude a certain disposition towards the type of things you're talking about. I, I don't think we have that. And I think in Muslim majority countries, it's even more pronounced where the idea that there can be like hikmah from like a non-Muslim, it's like not even on anyone's mind because you know, well, why would you go there? We have, we have everything here. And but I those just, same people, but those same people will listen to Nasir Shamma, you know, uh, uh, unpack uh, maqam hijazin and they will literally say, <laughs> they will literally say, Allah. Yeah, because it's beautiful. <laughs> Doesn't that blow your mind, dog? Like, why? Why are we? Sorry, I didn't mean to call you dog in the. No, podcast. that's fine. Why are we? <coughs> why don't we allow? Why don't we encourage the overcoming of parochial Islam? I'm nobody here is saying don't we, we lost here. the spirit. We lost the spirit of the early generation. The early generation translated everything they found from ancient wisdom, ancient mm -hmm. Indian wisdom, Greek, Roman, ancient Egyptian. They were obsessed with these things. They had official places that they used to translate these documents. And that's how we know about the ancient world is through the filter of the Muslims. They didn't have a problem with it. The Muslims didn't come into Egypt, see the pyramids and the Sphinx and say, blow it up. But rather the Sahaba prayed next to the pyramid and the Sphinx. And not that it's necessarily like a sound narration, but there is a tradition in Islam that the Sphinx, the head of the Sphinx is the head of Idris alayhi salam. Oh, wow. So no one said, oh, astaghfirullah. Look, this is like, they're like, oh, wow. Subhanallah, that must be Prophet uh -huh. Idris. Wow, uh -huh. Uh -huh. that's amazing. We got uh -huh. to keep this. So that's what we lost. We lost that attitude because we are not comfortable with our own system. I, I think it. if you're comfortable with your own system, like, yeah, get, you know, bring, I mean, I love, you know, I went to Japan. Uh, I had blessed to go a couple of years ago to two trips to Japan. And I, you know, I'm, uh, it's a place that's been on my radar for such a long time. And because I spent so much time studying Buddhism, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I really thrived being able to visit all of these uh, Buddhist monasteries and meet Buddhist monks and priests and to talk uh, I went to a Zen uh, monastery. We talked about meditation and Zen thinking. I also got to see, you know, you know, dozens of Shinto shrines. So for me, I'm like, this is amazing. You know, I've been studying about this mm. stuff for like a decade. And then now I get to see it mm. and interact. I never felt like threatened, like they're going to take away my Islam. You know, but I, I feel more of, as a Muslim because I had that exposure. So one of mm. the things that I picked up along the way is I think that when you study other systems of belief, it, alongside your system of belief, your system of belief tends to be more grounded. You ground yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, it's like people that don't have that attitude are not secure in their Islam.
I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I have always uh, made the observation that the people that say the craziest stuff within Islam are the people that have like recently decided to take up the mantle of being publicly Muslim. I mean, you, usually um, people who are centered uh, in in the strength of their, um, I don't want to say conviction, I want to say process of becoming in their faith, um, they, they don't often uh, feel the need to uh, assault the other. And so that, I think, brings us to, um, can I ask one more thing or are you going to ask? No, go ahead, man. We're not, I'm really, we're not I'm doing this. this. We're like in like a, we're like in a rhythm, man. Just keep going. Two instruments trying to make uh, a symphony. Habibi, Habibi. Um, how, how can we as Muslims begin to understand Islam outside of the nation state identity, the NGO Islamist identity, or the bye-bye, I'm not a part of this anymore, you're all backwards identity. I mean, those are kind of the three camps that we have right now. People who believe in um, some some uh, official connection between religious authority and governmental authority, people who believe that uh, in in kind of the Islamist narrative, for lack of a better phrase, and then people who are like, you know, forget all this, like this has no place in, which of course is not where we're at. How can we develop another option? Uh, a, an option that yields not only to like the fiqh al-aqalliyat issue that you pointed to, like the jurisprudence that has been created for the most part is a jurisprudence for realities in which you are in charge, you are in control, you have power. We don't have power as Muslims in the West. Is there the potential for us to elevate the subjectivity of each Muslim in order to allow them to develop their own narrative understanding of Islam that is divorced from those other camps? Because I'm not really seeing that right now. Well, I think we forget that religion is higher than the state. Religion is above the state. Huh. And the state is just a tool to ensure that there's power to allow certain religious practices to take place. When those religious mm. practices are allowed, we call mm. that Dar al-Islam, even mm. if that's in a non-Muslim majority country. So mm. if we can pray our prayers, do our Jummah, uh, slaughter our animals, uh, get married and divorced, and mm. bury our dead, pretty much that's it. Imam al-Mawardi says if you have that, you have Dar al-Islam, even if you live amongst non-Muslims. Mm. So this idea that the state is like the goal is very, very uh, incorrect. The state is just mm. a tool. And the state is always going to you know, come and go. There will always be different systems of government. So what's the goal? What's the telos? What's the goal for an individual Muslim, regardless of their level of religiosity, regardless of their level of literacy? What should their subconscious be concerned with? I want a space where I can find and discover God. And I want a space where I can express that and live with people that feel the same way 
and follow this way of life. That's it. I mean, alhamdulillah, mm. don't we have that? I, don't, I, I feel fulfilled with that, alhamdulillah. Mm. I don't feel like mm. I'm going to get shot if I go to the mosque. Uh, or well, <laughs> some. I know, I know, unfortunately, I know. you know. But I, I was gonna wear my Trump shirt, but it had a bad word on it, and I respect your podcast. So, uh, you know, we're we're not going to the mosque because of COVID right now. But you know, all else being equal, uh, we have yeah. that, and that's yeah. that should be enough for us, as mm. far as looking at it from the lens of religion. Now, there are some people that are obsessed with partisan politics and things like that. Okay, you know, go ahead, but leave religion out of that. There is no space for religion in partisan politics because you've, you have brought religion from something high and made it something low. You know, the but country bro, like everybody, but, but who has not done like, like, let's just take the country that we're from. The uh, Nasser played religion, Sadat played religion, the Ikhwan played religion, uh, 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 you know, the current narratives all play religion. I mean, I mean, really, the problem is that everyone has always played religion. Like, see, this is what I'm saying is like the original cancel culture, the original people who were playing with religion are the fuqahat. Are the imams? Are the scholars. well? You have to keep in. You have to keep in mind also that these are Muslim majority countries, so there is Good. there is some meta structure that is needed for the nation to be considered a Muslim nation. After those boxes are checked, the ulama really shouldn't be involved. So Islam, you know, getting Islam as the religion of the state in Egypt that was like a like a mini jihad, like that wasn't a slam dunk after. Uh, I think it was in like the 1918 or 1919 constitution saying that Islam mm. is one of the or the or whatever the wording is uh, mm. form of legislation. That's mm. an important box to check. After that, the ulamat are supposed to check out because after that it becomes low politics. But with high politics, the formation of the nation and the founding documents, yeah, the ulamat are going to get involved to ensure in a Muslim majority country that that meta structure is there. But do you see how that's still taught it playing defense? Like, I feel like let's go to a, like a secular idea. There's a difference between freedom from and freedom to. All of what you're describing as the ulama creating like barriers for the maintenance of integrity is about freedom from. None of what the ulama are actually offering is a, an encouragement or roadmap to the believer in what they have a freedom to. Do learn, engage, grow, innovate. You see what I'm saying? Like it's all about it's all about playing defense against haram or uh, bid'ah or uh, shirk. It's not a system that is geared toward a, a like a forward thrust towards the untested feasibility of what's possible like i always feel like the ulama are not qualified to do the forecasting sociologically that's required to try to get muslims to where they need to be for the moment does that make any sense no it does uh, but i mean the ulama are also not one kind so i think there are different good. i mean when okay, i'm talking good. about the ulama of the constitution and whatnot i'm talking about like the nerdy brainy you know mad professor who is making sure that these boxes are checked. That is not the person that is going to get out there in the streets and like, you know, motivate people. So I think mm -hmm. that there, there are just different ulama that have different capacities that play different roles. We refer to them as like one block, but they're not one block. You know, just like all lawyers are not one block. Good, or all, you know. good, good, good. So yes, we need that. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's also unfair to say there are none. I think there are, but, you know, maybe we need more or maybe we want them to be more effective. 
Well, I think I think the litmus test, I mean, often the litmus test for me is what is the space that they are creating for the inclusion of Muslims who are not of their flavor? Like for me as Ahmed, as somebody that studied Islam for a very long time and then studied law and then studied philosophy, um, I mean, what is the projection for the future of the role of women? What is the projection for the inclusion of LGBTQIA members of the Muslim community? What is the projection for um, you know like like what was in the '90s and '80s a question of science? Uh, uh, it, you know things like um, fertility treatments, are they permitted? Are they not permitted, uh, et cetera? today have become sociological questions like where will we end up as Muslims in a space where we are reasonable and we are in a dialectic rhythm with reality like most Muslims we are not living in reality we are not engaging reality where it stands why because we're not sober half of us are not sober because we're drinking and doing other things that are haram but the other half are not sober because either of nationalism or of religious exceptionalism or of personal racism or of, you know what I mean? So the, the challenge for me and the challenge that I present to the people whom I love, who are, who, are, who are in the scholar class, if you will, is do you think about where you're taking us? Do you ever think about where we're going aside from this kind of like the, 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 the three models that I've presented. And if so, what is the process of teaching these people that, that, that equips them to be able to forecast ethics into the future? Like we didn't just, like when we were, when we were over fiqh, when we did that, we didn't just do that. We gave up ethics. We gave up ethics. Like, when you talk to any Muslim about ethics, they look at you like, hey, bro, I don't know what you're talking about, bro. That's not like, that word doesn't come from. So we, we gave up these things. How can we convince Muslims that Islam is big enough for the modern moment if all they see is a retreat? Like, most of the Islam that is presented to the to the, I'm sorry to use the phrase the average Muslim is rear view mirror Islam. Stop look stop looking in front of you. Look at the rear view mirror. Stop looking in front of you. Look at the rear view mirror. Why? Because what's in the rear view mirror is what's blessed. It's closer to the original experience. It has more beauty in it. Those scholars know more. They're more authentic, organic, etc. 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 And so each of us is driving in 2020, and all we're looking at is the rear view mirror in the middle of the yeah, but the problem, Ahmed, is that is that our this phenomenon is it comes from a lack of a holistic Islam. So fiqh is not ethics. You can do something that is fiqh compatible but ethically wrong. Yes. So you know we were talking about slavery a, a, a while ago. You know, no one would agree. I hope that that slavery is something that is ethically good. Mm -hmm. But there is fiqh rules for how to deal with that situation. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and this is an important thing to remember is that one of the hallmarks of, the, of Sunni creed is that what mm. is good and what is bad is what God says is good and bad, not what we rationally determine. Sometimes we rationally will understand, yeah, I can see how killing uh, a little girl uh, because I'm, I'm upset that I have a girl and not a son and burying her alive, that's haram. I can see how that's grotesque. But ultimately, good and evil is defined as how Allah defines it vis-a-vis -vis reward and punishment in the hereafter. So not everything in our fiqh system we will understand rationally. But parking that to the side, the issue of ethics is another discipline. And that's what the, that's what the people of Tasawwuf added because they said, look, you can lead an outwardly fiqh compatible life, but you can be a despicable human being on the inside. So how, what's like the fiqh of like the inside? What's our ethics? How can we elevate the level of our humanity? So if yeah, we, but at, but but the ethics of muamalat as well, like right, like like you said it, you said it perfectly. Just because you can marry four women doesn't mean you should marry four women. Yeah, it or actually, might be haram least, if you do that. Well, that might that might be my personal opinion, of course. But no, 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 because why? Because the result is unethical. Yes, because you might create yeah. a, a result that is haram. So I'm saying just because it's like on the Good. books, it doesn't mean I can go do it. So who's but, teaching but, that? But that is a. But, but that's scholar Islam, bro. That's the Islam that you and I practice. No, no, that's no. I'm saying, I'm saying if I, when I teach my students, I also have to teach them the ethics, not just the, the do's and the don'ts. I, no, no, no. I totally agree with that. I'm just saying that what has been offered to the masses is an Islam that opposes enlightenment, that opposes reason, that opposes philosophy that opposes reform and Taban, of course like one of the uh, you know hallmark scholars of reforming islam then turned out to be not a very impressive person but like we as Wait, you can't you can't just say that without what are you referencing no Tariq ramadan i'm referencing Tariq ah, ramadan ah, okay, okay come on i mean this guy was we were like quasi worshiping come on like this was a huge blow to okay, my but, side. Well, why are of you the, saying Islam is against enlightenment philosophy? Where is that coming from? Like, no, I no, I am not saying. I am saying. No, no, no I know, but you're saying that what the Islam that is presented today. Yeah. But why is that? I mean, that's not my experience. Really? In the average youth group in the United States, they're talking about critical thinking and the reform of Islam. Ah, okay, okay. I'm sorry. Come I, on, I, man. You just got to put it in context because I'm just a little lost. Okay, okay. No, 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 no. Well, I don't do that. Come on now. You're talking about hey. Sunday school Islam. I'm talking about America. I'm talking about the 30% okay. of Muslims that actually show up at a mosque. Most of what they're doing is rote memorization and yeah. cultural mirroring. It's not, yeah. it's not okay, nothing to do with so, it. Uh, look, Ahmed, just to be very blunt, you know, the vast majority of these people are not trained. Okay, but I feel you. But is it, this, is like the, this is like the traditionalist argument that the reason why we have Al-Qaeda is because people are not following the rules. There's too much innovation. And I would suggest that I don't know if that's right. I think the reason we have them is because there wasn't enough maneuverability and malleability in the authentic structure. Well, I mean, I think that that argument against like the accordion, we just like kind of collapse it. I think that there's much more, there are many things You have that, to collapse it to make noise. I think there are many things that cause ISIS that we are really even not aware of that are geopolitical as well, that I think that maybe we don't want to talk about publicly, but are, are under the surface. And whether I, for better or for worse, I spent a few years looking at a lot of these things and it's, it's really uh -huh. demoralizing. So it's not just because they didn't follow the rules. There are other, you know, these people were definitely enabled somehow, some way to do that. But on the religious discourse side, if we just, you know, stick to America, you know, your average imam is not really an imam. 
he's just the guy that a lot of people, I remember a lot of people get their khutbah from like some like khutbah like website. Mm-hmm. They'd like literally like with a piece of paper, or like now with like a tablet, just like reading mm-hmm. the khutbah, like completely a different context. It was like in a different language translated, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Islam is like dumbed down. When I went mm-hmm. to the university and I met Sayyid Hussein Nas, so that was the first mm-hmm. time I, I met a quote-unquote smart Muslim. I was like, oh, this guy's smart. Dude, he's smart. I was like, oh, wow. Oh. This, I, I, did, I was like, yeah, I'm Muslim now. You know, yeah, <laughs> Before I was, a, I was scared. I was like, now, now I'm oh, a Muslim. I get I, that. I, I hear you. That. I, I hear yeah. you. I think that that's a big problem. But I, I would think that we would both agree that Islam is not like that originally that no 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 no. we're not talking about islam we're talking about what has like i get like you just gave the best example easily the most important piece of work in the last whatever many years is the study quran easily i mean yeah what text has given the average muslim more direct connection to the not only the original text of the quran like to understand but also the, the tafasir and also the articles in the front and the back. It's an amazing project. Totally rejected. Let's not play. Okay, yeah, not totally rejected. No, no, that was very sad. And look, let me because say... Of, but because of perennialism. Let me say, you know, you know, I, you know I'm, not a, I'm not a perennialist. Uh, I'm, you know, I consider myself a Sunni Muslim with mm-hmm. every definition of that word. But mm-hmm. uh, I have nothing but love and respect for, you know, uh, Dr. Nasr. I you know, studied with him for five years. And I think that the, you remember how we mentioned in the beginning, the idea of setr and, and mm-hmm. the, the modern world, this is an example of what happened. Like if you have a problem with certain passages, why don't you correct them and, and, and raise money to come up with a second edition? Mm-hmm. Because we are not the ummah of throwing away. Mm-hmm. We even have forged hadith. We have published volumes of forged hadith, hadith that were made up, that we know are lies. We publish them and they're on our shelves because we have trust in our intellectual system. So if somebody mistrans... And there are mistranslations. I, I've seen them and I looked at some of those examples. Okay, fine. The whole thing is Zibela and you throw the whole thing away? No, but they're saying the whole thing is to be thrown away because it comes from... Because, because Sayyid Hussein Nasr is associated with it. Of course, I, I, you know, I cited him extensively in my dissertation. Um, so I'm not a... I'm not a like, I'm not unbiased here. Sayyid Hussein Nasr holds, uh, to some extent, the view that all of these ways of life are sourced in and end at one place. Is that a fair way of saying it? That there is a moving walkway of spirit upon which Islam walks and Christianity walks and the heart that doesn't have an identity walks, etc. And that moving walkway leads to goodness. It leads to beauty. It leads to the unpacking of reality. It leads to what we would call in my, in my field, critical consciousness. And in the world of religion, that idea is called perennialism. Or that idea is called the perennialism as a way to delegitimize it. Okay, so the most important book of our time, which the average Muslim has not even read probably, okay? Among the scholars, they reject it. And they reject it, why? Because it might, might argue for the fact that Islamic supremacy and exceptionalism 
is not necessarily a prerequisite to faithfulness. Yeah, Ahmed, this is not the way of the ulama. You, you, you don't just take something and chuck it because somebody said something that you don't like. Especially something that took 20 years to produce and you, know, you have to put, publish yeah. online uh, the mistakes. That's it. Yeah, no, but I want, I'm, 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 but I'm not on that. I'm asking you, we live in a world where this most important project was rejected because it could have been interpreted to say that all paths lead to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want to talk about that idea. I'm not talking about ah, okay, the project. Fine. Well, but, but, but it's not quite like that because what he's saying, first of all, there, are, there was cutting and pasting of certain translations of tafsir to make that meaning. So in those passages, which are only a handful, the translation is uh, purposefully, purpose, on purpose, adulterated. So that from just, a, forget about what, what the goal is. From an academic point of view, like that. Oh, oh, it's like an incorrect citation. No, like he'll like, you know, translate the first sentence, miss the second sentence and translate the third sentence and put one and three together to give mm -hmm. you his idea because that middle sentence is like the caveat. So that's just not intellectually sound. The other thing is Islam, uh, from a theological point of view, is not, it's exceptional and not exceptional. In other words, there are, there is a host, there's a many, there are other categories of people that, that we believe will be saved that are not Muslim. Mm -hmm. So rather than uh, fighting over the, that, uh, those mistranslations, it would, it would just be better to have a, an article at the end or front of the study Quran explaining what Islam says about salvation. I mean, wouldn't that just be easier? Yeah, but but yeah, but it but it would also be walking away from the hard conversation, which is who is responsible for this soccer jersey Islam that we're living? Who's responsible Look, for man, the when idea? people are when people talk, are who's responsible for the people that are simple-minded? La, la 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 la. Sorry, Malish. La, la, sorry. They have been they have been domesticated by the scholars and the imams. They have okay, been. Okay, Ahmed, scared. I consider myself somebody who, uh, you know, I carry a senad and a silsila and the azhar and all of this, and I don't feel like that. You know, I don't. Yeah, think because that my you have are going to go to the hellfire. Bro, that's why we're talking, bro. Because you're a reasonable. Yeah, I don't. I don't even feel. Person. I don't even feel like people like. Uh, you know, the most crazy Islamophobes are necessarily no, 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 going wait, to the wait, hellfire? Wait. Not about hellfire. It's not about takfir. It's not about hellfire. It's about the idea that Islam is a basketball team. Christianity is another basketball team. Judaism is another basketball team. And the, and the Hindus are over there. They're a basketball team. And everybody's got a different jersey on. And when you go to the tournament, what do you do at a tournament? You play against another team. And the goal is what? Is for you to win the game by having more points. Okay, that, well, uh, that understanding of Islam, the metaphor is, up to a point, there are, we are theological teams because there are theological differences or else we wouldn't have different religions. But when we get together, uh, you know, I don't get do the interface stuff that I do to combat people theologically, I get them so we can solve the problem of hunger in our county, or, you know, uh, combating Department of Zoning, which is like the death knell of happiness in this country, is the Department of Zoning in every county government. It's where happiness goes to die. That's where and, power is. So, yeah, a lot of power, man, a lot of power. I mean, now I understand Robert Moses and the power broker because of like the zoning stuff. 
So literally, that's what we're talking about. But, you know, I don't believe in what the Latter-day Saints believe or what in the, the Hindus believe. Or, but I also recognize that these are Ahlul Kitab. And why do we have that construct? So Ahlul Kitab doesn't mean Jew and Christian. Ahlul Kitab is any pre-Islamic organized religion. So why do we have all of these rules about Ahl al-Kitab? Because we have to live in them. And why does Allah tell us in the Quran, you know, everyone has their own sharia and minhaja. Everyone has their way and their religion. Allah t- doesn't say go out, you know, and bang everyone with the Quran and Sunnah until they convert. Allah mm-hmm. says, La ikraha fid deen. Allah says, Woman woman Yeah, but our issue is. Why did we throw away Allah. those meanings? You know why, man, because they didn't have utility for the people that were that were in power at the time. I mean, whether it's like your local mosque board all the way up to the Ottoman Empire that you mentioned. Like you were when we started this conversation, you mentioned my podcast about the Hajj Sophia. Like we are I don't want to use the word tribal because that's kind of orientalizing us, but we 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 are a pigeonholing people. We come from camps and we yeah. have allowed those camps to come to uh, influence our interpretation of the word of God. And, and I'm out here thinking, but there's got to be a way to interpret the word of God without being in one of the camps. But I, I want you to understand that what I'm saying does not excuse mm-hmm. the uh, apparent uh, purposeful adulteration of some of the translations in the study of Quran. That's why people were upset. Mm. Mm. So I agree with you as a theory, but when it comes, if we just go back to a second to the actual study Quran project and why people were upset, I think they were upset because they're like, you know what, you you on purpose, you know, didn't translate sentence two and three because it clearly says opposite of what you think it says. But why are we afraid of tribalism, or why are we afraid of the you know this exclusion thing? Is because it's easy to to feel like I belong to the right group and you belong to the wrong group. Mm. And my group is going to win. But mm. that, I, again, and I tell you that that is a sign that we are not confident in our own belief. Mm. If you're confident in your own belief, you're going to see the whole world as this fantastic opportunity to learn and plug things in and become a better person and help people and build a better world. That's what Allah wants us to do. That's what mm. He says in the Quran. Mm. If you feel like your job is to go bash every Muslim that doesn't like wear your jersey, no, no, no. Take me to the other side. Are you supposed to do that holding a flag that says Islam? That's where we're getting the misunderstanding. It's well, not that, like when you're in the world, when you're a part of this world. Oh. Well, it depends what you're doing. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a biochemist, I mean, you're a biochemist. That's the flag mm-hmm. that you're wearing. You know, mm-hmm. my flag mm-hmm. happens to be the flag of Islam because I'm an imam of a mosque, a resident scholar, and I do a lot of uh, teach the Sharia. So that's and I, I go to the interfaith thing literally because I'm carrying the flag of Islam. So mm-hmm. that, that's for me. But but if you an athlete, you know, if you're like Muhammad Salah, mm-hmm. you know, you're carrying the Liverpool flag. Mm-hmm. You know, Islam becomes secondary vis-a-vis the public discourse. I mean, he's a practicing Muslim and everything, but that, why does he have to talk? Like, why does like the news person have to ask him? Like, what do you think about like the Aya Sophia thing? Like, yeah. Ask him about like, you know, yeah. Yeah. about the yeah. game. Yeah. Or like yeah. the potential for next season. Like that's so what the, been, but, 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 you know, a big part of our oppression in America has been that each of us is forced into explaining Aya Sophia even though we have no, you know what I mean? Like part of your oppression is your maintenance, sir. even on issues that you don't know anything about. Um, and, and, you know, 
you know, I, I'm one of the people that um, mourns the lack of a healthy environment in which Muslims can fully actualize. And I think you're right. I think this cancel culture thing is a part of it. Um, I, of course, come from the camp that, you know, we've been mistreated by scholars. Um, they have uh, over Islam and they have decentered. <laughs> they have decentered the, um, they've, they've decentered the subjectivity of the individual worshiper of God and, and they have created a bifurcation between the deen and the dunya that um, you know allows for brilliant people who do uh, brain surgery during the day to come home at night and once the topic of Islam is opened you know they're, they're the entire capacity for yeah we're schizophrenic we're schizophrenic yeah, yeah that's a problem and I think you know, it, 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 because I spend my, a majority of my time with uh, quote-unquote ulama, I think it's also hard for me to hear you say that because I think the examples that you have are not the examples that I have. But yeah, of course. We, but, but we call them all as like one block, the ulama. So let me step out of my own bias and, and mm. say, yeah, there are certain personalities either in foreign languages or in the English languages who have, we thought, or we assumed are like of the enlightened type who have taken us down a path, uh, you know, that is regretful. And my, my only, you know, statement at this time to that is that that is not the Islam that I was taught. You know, the Islam that I was taught was more holistic, that there are other things at play. The fiqh stuff, that's for like the fiqh class. Like you're not going to sit at dinner with your family and talk about legal precedents in American law mm-hmm. or like start like reciting like, you know, mm-hmm. let me read to you the latest Supreme Court, you know, opinion. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they're not, that's not, they're not specialists. Mm-hmm. But fiqh is the same way. So if we come to the community with all of that fiqh, you're right, we have over, you know, we have overdone it with them because that's not the place for that. The place there is to inspire, is to build, to embrace, to, you know, to push forward all of the things that you've been talking about, to mm. create the space where people can find God, you know, worship God peacefully. That's what's important in the public space. Beautiful. Bro, I could literally, I could go, I can, I mean, I could go, uh, we can, uh, we can go for, for as long as, as you want. I'm enjoying Let's this Let's go a little so bit much. longer. Let's go a little bit longer. Go ahead. I'm all yours. You got, you got a thought? Um... Well, I'm interested to know from you, I mean, this is more like personal, mm. uh, just like if I was interviewing you, you know, purely for my uh, podcast, I would want to sure. ask you, I would I want to ask you about Maher Hathout. Oh, what wow. That ex- what that experience was like. Oh, wow. And that influence. Uh, oh, and, You're going to make me cry, man. Well, I, I don't mean to, but I know it's personal uh, for you, but because it's such a, such a figure in your life and for so many people. Yeah, I see, mashallah. So uh, could you talk, uh, can you share wow. with me a little bit of what that meant for you and that influence? Man, you just, man, that's like the freeway to my heart, man. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, man, it's still hard. Uh, Maher Hathout was a young man in um, Egypt, uh, in, in, a, in Shibinikum. And he um, had a very assertive mom, 
uh, she was very smart. She was very engaged in society, and uh, she was uh, a powerhouse. And his older brother uh, became a private secretary uh, to uh, Hassan al-Banna, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. And that began for Dr. Meher, who was 11 years his uh, uh, junior, uh, a, a stint of uh, membership in the Muslim Brotherhood, including uh, being jailed in Egypt, etc. Uh, around 1957, 58, uh, Meher wrote an article from Kuwait uh, in which he condemned the Muslim Brotherhood and um, basically said, like, you know, I'm out, this is whack. He eventually made his way to Southern California and he and his brother Hassan Hathout, along with a great scholar named Fathi Osman, uh, and and Dr. Aslam Abdullah, uh, they created the Islamic Center of Southern California, which became kind of a hub of intelligent, progressive, uh, classical uh, understanding of Islam and Muslim identity. It was kind of the 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 initial seeds of the American Muslim identity among immigrant communities, and um, there was a. Freirian coherent to what Dr. Meher did. It was it was about um, endowing people with the faithfulness to uh, strive. Dr. Hathrut had a Quran class once a week, and in his Quran class, you would read the verse, and then he would say, "What do you think that means? What does that mean to you?" And that 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 is how he began every conversation about Islam. He wanted to give you the comfort and authority to, uh, to explore. Um, he was, you know, a, a, a person who understood that when you sit with your peers, you get more of the same, but when you sit with young people, you develop as a human being. Um, he really, uh, was of the opinion that um, young people should be trusted as though they are adults in uh, the process of attempting to change reality. What Dr. Hathrout was not uh, was an imam or, or a sheikh or any sort of thing like that. He was a cardiologist. He was a very good cardiologist. Um, and in my early experience with him, uh, you know, when I got like my driving permit at 16 years old, Dr. Hathrout was the one that signed it because you have to have an adult next to you while you're driving until you turn 18. And, um, you know, I, I spent much of my youth in the car with him, uh, lost on the freeways of Southern California, <laughs> t- you know, talking about talking about the craziest stuff. Um, imagine like living with a Muslim uh, ethical Che Guevara, you know, like like a, a, a historical. He was an Abraham Lincoln. He was a he was something um, very common, very normal, very humble. He's the most humble man you ever met, but very special, very different. Um, was he? Did, uh, did he ever talk about the Brotherhood, or like when he came to America, was that still a part of his identity, or did he really just sort of? 
because he, he wasn't really part of the brotherhood that came to the U.S. Like the no, 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 no. He, he rejected the Muslim Brotherhood when he was still living in Kuwait. Um, no, Dr. Hathrout is, uh, you know, was actually opposed to much of what the Muslim Brotherhood uh, attempted to do in the United States and, and attempted to, to, to build. I mean, Dr. Hathrout... Uh, was the first one to say nobody should take any money from abroad. He was the first one to say we're American Muslims. He was the first one to divest. You know, he would say my home is where my grandchildren will be buried, not where my grandfather was born. Um, he was very much focused on the United States. Um, he, his movement, which, you know, is like the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Islamic Center of Southern California, the New Horizon schools, uh, you know, has nothing to do with the you know, his 17-year-old self in the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and it, it, it does not yield to that type of thinking. Um, you know, the, the, what Dr. Hathrout built is not kind of a bunch of people who think the same things. Um, many of us who are very close to him have, have uh, opposing ideas. And, um, and you know, that, that's, how, that's how he liked it and that's how he encouraged it. Did, For did me... It I was going to say, did the Brotherhood people here, I mean, the last Brotherhood-related question, did they, give him, <laughs> did they give him trouble? Because I, there is this pattern sometimes of like people that leave, they're sort of stigmatized yeah. and, yeah. you know, did that, was there like any like, or just like normal stuff? No, nah, it's just like any other gang, bro. It's like any other, it's, mm -hmm. it's any other environment where people are living thug life. If you're one of the OGs, <laughs> people don't mess with you. You know what I mean? Like we're talking about, we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, a 70 year old man who when he was 17 yeah he was around hassan al-banna so if you're a muslim brotherhood guy in 2018 or 2016 or 1995 or whatever um you're not gonna be holier than the pope <laughs> so he actually be. met ben i mean yeah no no these people they live they live that life they live that, they life. Live that life okay they live that Interesting. life yeah. yeah 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 until they left egypt they live that and life. when did he pass remind me uh, three years ago, four years ago. Mashallah. A lot of he was um, he was a fountain of beauty and, and a fountain of wisdom. And everything I do is 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 uh, is an attempt to fulfill uh, you know more sadaqas for him on this on this uh, earth. So I will thank you for sharing. I'm, I'm glad I, I got to ask you. Uh, I've 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 been um, last maybe a few years. I've met many people who have come from that community hmm. uh, some of them are like now in the dc area and uh, some are you know like yourself you know sometimes here sometimes not here but but every time the one thing that i can say is that every time i ask this question i get like the same type of rhythm in the response hmm. and the, the, just to tie our like two conversations together the way you just reacted like to, to Dr. Hathout, Allah and the impact that he's had and like the lasting, you know, you have your, his pictures there and he's like his living memory there. He inspired you. He uh, opened for you, unlocked for you uh, your potential, alhamdulillah. That's what I would say the ulama did for me, especially mm. the ones that I studied with. So mm. I think that there is something to be said that it is like a normal human need to have a mentor. Mm. Mm. and somebody to guide you and, and look up to you. And mm. what I was taught is that if you're a person of, uh, that studied you know, sacred knowledge, as we, as we call it in English, not the best translation, is like that's what you need to be for your community. So whether you're a public figure or you're like a local figure, if you're not, if you're not helping the next generation, your Islam has failed because this religion mm. is based on passing Islam from generation to generation. It's not, it's not based on all these books that you see and 
you know, that's just all like a distraction. Islam is like what comes from one person's heart to another person's heart. Okay. And that's how the Sahaba were. You know, there were only like a, a maximum 20 Sahaba that were really scholarly. The rest of the Sahaba were just average people, what we would call average people. But they were blessed because they were the generation that lived with the best of creation, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So I think that we kind of end where we begin. That's what we need. We need that spirit and that heart. Hmm. But I, I, in the process, I don't think we can uh, negate the fact that that's natural. We need people to look up to and yeah. to guide us. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's beautifully said. And we need those people to uh, be responsible. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing about Dr. Meher is he wasn't just my friend. He was my mom and dad's friend. Sure. Uh, he wasn't just my friend. He was then my wife's friend. Um, you know why? Because he never transgressed. Uh, he never betrayed his wife. He never transgressed uh, uh, against someone's rights. And that's what I hope for young people today. I hope that they can find someone in their life who can inspire them towards goodness and, and a type of reflexivity looking inward that allows for them to develop into better human beings. And, you know, I hope that as we become more literate of Islam and of the world, uh, the options for our young people uh, for mentorship expands. It, it doesn't contract. I hope that those mentors, if they were all invited into a stadium, they would all look very different from each other and be dressed very different from each other because um, it requires a different type of messenger to reach each type of heart mindset paradigm. And I think a, a part of why we're struggling today is you know, we're not, um, you know, the Prophet said, speak to the people on the wavelength of their minds. And, and I, I think our sense of supremacy has allowed for us to come uh, to the mistaken assumption that um, the masses are to come to our wavelength. Not that it is us who are required to go to the people's wavelength. To, to preach that goodness. So I got to tell you, th this has been easily the most beautiful and personally enriching conversation. Allah, had in likewise, long time. likewise. I'm May glad Allah that we bless did this. you. And bless yeah, you too. I'd love to keep doing it. Uh, let's uh, well, let's if, let the if world, the world turn. keeps going the way it's going, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about in a month. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Thank you, sir. May Thank Allah you. bless you. Thank you so you too, much. You too, man. We'll talk to you soon, inshallah. Inshallah. Assalamualaikum. Alaikum One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. Thank you.